Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today on the show, we welcome portfolio manager Alex Gold as he discusses his outlook for the global healthcare sector in 2024 and the themes he's watching out for this year. Alex shares that a major theme he has seen so far this year is increased utilization of hospital services. This differs from a few years prior where many were hesitant to check into hospitals during the majority of COVID-19. Last year, healthcare was among the worst performing S&P subsectors, although the global market is expected to jump from 750 million people to around 1.5 billion. Because of this, Alex believes there's an opportunity to invest in healthcare's long-term structural growth. Alex also notes that the subsidies on the stage of valuations is another huge healthcare theme, primarily due to the major Nordic drug companies associated with weight loss products. This podcast was recorded on January 30th, 2024. I might just start off, if you don't mind, because we are sort of aflood with all of these AI headlines looking to big tech. And to a certain extent, healthcare has always been big tech. Certain sectors of it have always been big tech. Which, which areas are most affected by the AI story right now? Is it the diagnostics area? Well, diagnostics is one area where AI can certainly be applied. And I think some of the large diagnostic companies are already using it. But in general, I think the, the key area where, where AI is being applied for healthcare is in the R&D functions of all the large pharma and biotech companies, because the hope is that they can therefore identify drug targets more efficiently, more quickly, and then hopefully develop drugs which will um, you know, get to market slightly quicker and help patients. So that's kind of the primary area where it's being used. There aren't, to be honest, many pure play healthcare AI companies. Most of it's embedded within the very large organizations already. Right, they're deploying it within. Really, really interesting. And we'll, we'll, t- we'll take a look. Actually, let, let's go through the earnings story, just a little bit of what you've seen thus far. Are there particular themes that you would point to? And then we'll get into what the fund actually seeks and looks for and sort of the, the, the taste of the fund itself. But are there themes that you could share with us through the earnings period so far? Yeah, so I mean, we're quite early on, but last week and this week we started to get a couple of themes already. One of the, one of the, the key major ones at this stage is you know, the increased utilisation of hospital services. So we've seen this both from the hospital providers, such as HCA, which actually announced their results you know, a couple of hours ago on the, the New York um, Open, uh, which was very strong in terms of the amount of patients going back to hospitals, which is obviously beneficial for them, for their revenue growth. Uh, but then conversely... What do you mean going back to hospitals? What, what does that mean as a trend, I guess? Well, well, during COVID, lots of patients, you know, particularly the elderly, were reticent to go into hospitals because of COVID. Uh, we saw that clearly in 2021 and even some reticence in 2022. However, by 2023, we really saw a recovery in patients going back for elective surgery, so having your hip and knee replaced or, um, you know, various treatments like that. And really, that continued very strongly in 2023, as HCA results showed, but also the managed care companies have, you know, seen higher costs associated with that on the people that they're insuring, the populations they're insuring, um, you know, has been more expensive because people have been utilising the hospital systems more than they initially anticipated. And those trends 
um, initially look like they're continuing into 2024 as well. So interesting. So tell us, Alice, a little bit about the fund itself. What what you seek? Do you do you dive into sort of the biotech areas? Which which areas do you focus on most broadly? Whether you're overweight or underweight right now is another question. But just describe the fund for us. Yeah. So the fund has a quality bias and focus on trying to identify good quality companies with attractive return on investor capital a track record of good capital allocation, good free cash flow generation, and ultimately companies that can compound their earnings and, and cash flow over a number of years. Um, so there's very clear quality bias. That does mean that I have very little exposure to biotech. Biotech is not an area, small cap biotech is not an area where I have much exposure to. Um, I get lots of the innovation exposure through either some of the large cap pharma with their pipelines, or, you know, really lots of the, the dice science and tools companies, which help the biotech companies um, conduct their research, conduct their clinical trials, and also ultimately will manufacture the drugs for them if they're successful. So the analogy I always use, which I think is appropriate, is in the gold rush, I want to own the picks and shovels. The picks and shovels is a much better way to get exposure than trying to find a gold mine, which might be great, but it might also come to nothing. Right. Fascinating. Okay. Really helpful in taking us through sort of how that, that works. We always have to ask about the political system in, in the United States and ultimately what it means for healthcare. I mean, how, how does an election result one way or the other later on this year in the United States affect the healthcare landscape? So healthcare is often seen as a hot political topic. Um, however, I, I'm not sure that is the case this time. You know, in 20. Um, 20, there was, you know, a lot of doubt about whether uh, Biden would even be the Democratic nominee. So we had the Democratic primaries. And that whenever you go through that process, you have some on the far left of that party, such as Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders in, in those 2019 primaries, who were really advocating an overhaul of the healthcare system, and in particular, put forward bills such as, you know, Medicare for All, which would have you know, disintermediated some of the, the managed care, well, all of the managed care companies because people would have ultimately um, gone to a centralised healthcare system more like we see in the UK. Um, however, that, you know, they didn't win. You know, we had uh, Biden, who is much more of a centrist, come from behind and, and he was a candidate for the Democratic Party. Ultimately, he then obviously won the election and became president. You know, as we look at things now, um, the likely you know, um, battle for the presidential election will be Biden as the incumbent versus likely Trump. And, you know, both of those guys are, are not advocating an overhaul of the healthcare system. There, there will be, certainly be rhetoric on drug pricing. That's always the case. But an overhaul of the entire system with this sort of Medicare for all is highly unlikely. And that that's really, um, you know, an important point to, to think about. Bring us up to date on the state of valuations, essentially, for, for those companies that offer obesity drugs. We, we think specifically to the Nordics, but there are other competitors in the field right now. Bring us up to date on, on the story there. It's, it's certainly a story of 2023, isn't it? Yes. I mean, obesity was, was, has been absolutely huge, one of the biggest themes in healthcare. And, you know, I think together with AI, there's not, you know, in the broader market, there's not many industries which can have the extent of innovation which creates 
a hundred billion dollar market. And that's essentially what's happened. We, you know, two years ago, the obesity market was effectively non-existent in terms of the drugs available for, for the obese population. There was still debate about whether obesity was even a disease. Whereas now we've had such good products that have come out from Novo Nordisk and Eli Lilly that it's created, you know, what most people expect to be a hundred billion dollar market by 2030 or the, you know, the early 2030s. And what, what's happened is those companies, world-class companies from a diabetes perspective, and they're using those uh, technology and those drugs, which have been very successful for helping control um, insulin levels and blood sugar for diabetes. And they're applying that to obesity. And so what we've seen is various data throughout the year, which has shown significant weight loss, up to 15, 20% weight loss by taking a weekly injectable. Um, but importantly, they've been able to tweak the drugs through those clinical trials over the years to ensure that nausea and diarrhea and various side effects are increasingly manageable. And, you know, the benefit of losing 15 to 20% of your body weight for some of the obese population you know, does mean that you're less likely to have certain cardiovascular events. And so there was a very prominent trial by Novo Nordisk that read out in the late summer, the SELECT trial, which effectively shows that if you use these drugs, you've got there's a 20% lower chance of having certain cardiovascular events. And so when you build this up with the other comorbidities that many obese patients have, you start to have a, a picture whereby taking these drugs, you could potentially actually save the healthcare system money as well as have these great outcomes for patients because you know they're healthier and and don't have as many issues with things like cardiovascular events. When certain types of of innovation and discussions get to the point, I mean, there are lots of analogies for, you know, getting stock tips from your taxi driver or however, you know, when it gets to the point where everyone's talking about it, I was watching a CEO of a, I'll say an unnamed restaurant chain, be asked about obesity drugs and how he felt about it. And the eye roll was, <laughs> was almost audible. But I'm just interested, you know, in that vein, Essentially, is every, does everyone know about it? Is is it priced in? So t tell us about the, val the case for valuations there. Does it just continue to have legs or or do we get to some pretty lofty levels at this point? Yeah, I mean, Novo Nordisk and, and Eli Lilly were both up 50% approximately last year in absolute terms. So, uh, you know, a, a large proportion of that market opportunity, one would argue, is, is priced in. Um, you know, they do have some follow-on products which can potentially give even greater weight loss um, or, um, you know, different, you know, ways of actually administering the drugs, such as orals. They're developing orals in their pipeline. So imagine being able to take a pill every day or once a week and losing 15 to 20 percent of your body weight. I mean, that could be, you know, could be, again, pretty transformative. Um, but, you know, I think it's fair to say a large proportion of the opportunity is discounted here, you know, but even then, you know, to get to a hundred billion dollar market by sort of the early 2030s, that only implies sort of 15 to 20 percent of the obese population in the U.S. is treated. And so, but then we start to get to quite significant questions about, you know, how long do patients actually take the drugs for? Because, you know, we, if you stop taking them, your weight does go back up. And so, you know, are you going to need to be on these drugs forever? You know, will it be a chronic treatment? And who's going to pay for that? Are, are, is your employer really going to pay for that for the next 
20 years? Is the government going to pay for that? At the moment, Medicare does not cover it, um, does not cover these treatments. In the UK, they will only cover treatment for two years. So the drugs look great, but there's an important question mark about who will pay for this, how many people will take it, and, and ultimately how long people actually take them for. So, um, and then the final, you know, unknown at this point is is competition. When there's a market, you know, that's a hundred billion dollars, people, you know, want to try and gain some small portion of that from these two big players. So you've got big pharma, biotech companies like Amgen, uh, Pfizer, um, who have, you know, some have had some success, some have had not so much success in developing products. Then you've got a whole host of much smaller companies that are also trying to develop these drugs and have had some, you know, potentially um, interesting early data. So it's an evolving landscape and it's, you know, it's, it really is an interesting space to watch. Yeah, fascinating. Tell us about the broader market, healthcare and the broader market and, and what we saw last year, how, how potentially it sets up this year. And we're still in January, so we can still ask those questions mm. of how to go for 2024. We're days from that ending. But do give us a bit of a, a backdrop. The macro fits into it too. Yeah, so you know, healthcare last year was one of the worst performing subsectors in the S&P um, and broadly, you know, at a global level, healthcare was, you know, underperformed by about 20 percentage points, you know, in a very narrow leadership, which I think most people recognize and have heard about with the Magnificent Seven in the US and in particular AI. Um, but it's important to step back because if you look at a two-year view, you know, just in 2022, when we had kind of... Um, more of a value-orientated market, and there was people concerned about rate hikes and potential recession. Healthcare is the strongest performing sector. So on a two-year view, if you include 2022 and 2023, the healthcare is broadly flat versus the broader markets, which is what's important to put into perspective, because obviously tech was very weak in 2022. So, you know, as I think about things here, you know, it's still highly uncertain, you know, when we'll have the first Fed rate cut, you know, will that be in March? You know, that's gone from being a 70% probability to now 50-50, uh, or will it be in April, June? It's really unclear when the first rate cut will be and ultimately how many there will be, uh, whether it's 100 bits or maybe you know, 125 bits of rate cuts this year. You know, I really don't know, and I don't think anybody does. And will we have a soft landing or a hard landing? All these things are completely intertwined. Um, but that's, that's why I think the point you made at the beginning is, is important. You know, I don't know the answer to those macro questions, but I do know that on a multi-year, a multi-decade view, we will go from 750 million people to 1.5 billion people globally aged over the age of 65. So in this period of uncertainty, which seems to kind of be ever-present at the moment, I, I do think the opportunity to invest in long-term structural growth which healthcare clearly has, you know, is, is pervasive, whether it's the 2023, 24, 25, I think it's, you know, the, the growth of the healthcare sector is, is pretty immune to the macro environment. When you talked about the performance of healthcare versus the broader market last year, and, and as you say, it's a well-known story of what moved the market last year, you know, people often want to know, is, is it a good entry point? I mean, are, are valuations at a point, because that was the case last year, does it, is there anything new or different or, or better about uh, prospects now? Yeah, so the valuations for some of the sectors have certainly come down. Obviously, within uh, it's kind of nuanced by subsector. Within pharma, so the average 
and his PE is, you know, just 12 to 13 times if you exclude Lily and Novo, which are, you know, elevated to that, that growth opportunity and obesity. Um, the managed care companies, um, because of some of these utilisation concerns, you know, in 2024, but they importantly will reprice their insurance premiums every year. So 25 and 26 should get back to more normalised margins. You know, those companies trade low market multiples, you know, United Healthcare, the biggest managed care company, which has historically compounded at its revenue, its, its earnings at 13 to 16% per annum in the last decade, basically, um, and should do that over the next decade, um, trades on 16 times earnings, um, which is, you know, pretty attractive, in my opinion, um, if you take a long-term view. Um, the medical device companies, you know, as I said at the beginning, they are, the prospects of those businesses are, are pretty strong at the moment with people going back to hospitals to have, have their elective treatments. Um, so they are valued a bit more fully at the 20, 24 times earnings, um, although obviously it varies. Um, and then the tools companies are actually, you know, going through a bit of a soft patch because we've got, you know, a variety of headwinds, whether it's growth slowing in China, customer destocking, a bit of cautiousness in terms of um, spending. You know, their end markets have decelerated from sort of mid-single-digit levels on a normalised long-term basis to, to being flat because of this confluence of headwinds. But again, that creates, you know, an opportunity because we do know longer term that the end market growth rates are very robust. So there's lots of opportunities within that. So, you know, I certainly valuations are not elevated in my view, and there's, there's plenty of opportunity for stock picking within the various subsectors. Fascinating. And um, when you mentioned tools, I feel like that's the right moment to talk about robots. We, I think yeah. we a lot of people saw the, the headlines last week about the Da Vinci. This is sort of round two or second iteration. It's a surgical robot looking looking to enhance surgery even more. To take us into this story and probably the broader story of how this is going to play a role in, in hospitals. Yeah, right? so, so, so intuitive surgical is, is a fantastic business um, based in California. It's, you know, very well established with, sort of, you know, high EBIT margins and a very strong track record of of delivering double-digit growth. Um, you know, they, they've announced after much speculation a um, they have sought FDA approval for a new Da Vinci robot. It's called Da Vinci 5. It's the first robot they will have had on the market since um, for about a decade. And so people have been very excited about the opportunity for both a replacement cycle of hospitals um, upgrading to this new robot and you know, really, it's a it's a kind of um, assisted robotic surgery where the you know a variety of procedures, um, a lot of which will be kind of fairly um, standardised. You can do quicker and with lower complications on their robot, and so there's already you know huge amounts of place across the US and and globally. And um, the what hope is that what kind of surgeries are we yeah. talking about? hysterectomies, uh, bariatric surgery. Um, there's a, sort of a variety um, of them, so some uro urology types of surgery. But, you know, in general, I think the way they articulate it is that there's about 21 million procedures annually, which they feel the, the current robot can, um, can help with. And the key is if the robot is more minimally invasive or the robot with the surgeon enables lower complication rates, and that's 
good for the patient, the, the patient um, will have a better outcome. But then it's also good for the hospital system because lower complication rates mean that um, people are in hospital for less time and that costs less money. So a lot of the big US um, hospital centers already have the Da Vinci robot and it, the product has not been unveiled. We've simply had confirmation that there will be a new robot this year after several years of speculation. Um, and so it will be unveiled in terms of its features and, and, um, and what it can do in the coming months. But, you know, it's a really innovative company. They've had, you know, a fantastic track record. It's, you know, very capital light. The return on capital is good. The free cash flow generation is strong. The balance sheet is strong. Um, and it's, you know, exciting to see what this, this robot will be able to do and, and how it could help patients going forward. Fascinating in the whole field of robotic surgeries. We, when you read headlines about, so Elon Musk and, and Neuralink and this idea of brain implants that ultimately can can help just from the brain control computers. And so, I mean, there, there are versions of this now. My daughter who doesn't speak uses an eye gaze technology to help her speak, but this is obviously on a whole new level. But they discuss it as patients are in trials for this. Is this, is this healthcare? Do you, do you think of this as healthcare? That's a good question. I don't know if that's more healthcare or tech. There's not, there's not many companies that I can invest in that are doing those sort of things. I mean, they might be working on them in their pipelines, but you know, there's, um, there's not many sort of investable opportunities in the, in those areas that I can think of, but certainly the, the willingness and the appetite to invest in innovation you know, it's huge and, you know, other areas, you know, that in parallel, such as, you know, gene therapy and, you know, curing patients that might have certain genetic disorders is, you know, we've seen that that's already, you know, come through. We've seen, you know, with mRNA um, and the vaccines from Moderna, a huge leap forward there. So, you know, and the, and the next one of the next kind of big markets is, you know, Alzheimer's, where we've seen positive data last year from from Eli Lilly again and and Biogen on you know for the first time there's, there's it's a huge unmet need in Alzheimer's but it's a huge population and again as we age that's, that's only going to increase so you know there are various frontiers and areas within healthcare which you know companies are, are trying to innovate and, and spend you know R&D dollars in because you know there's still huge opportunity. So oh, interesting are there opportunities for M&A do you do you either play that or look at that or take that into consideration? Are there, are there, is it a particularly interesting time or not? Yeah, so we, see, we have seen a bit of an acceleration of M&A towards the back end of last year. In particular, the large pharmaceutical companies that have patent expiries towards the end of the decade are looking to you know, fill those revenue holes through M&A, often buying kind of smaller companies who have products you know, coming out in development if they pass their clinical trials towards the end of the decade. That is probably one of the main areas of M&A. Sometimes that can be good, but also sometimes, you know, companies can can overpay for an asset or maybe the clinical trial doesn't work, um, so it can destroy value. So, you know, it really does depend on, on, on what the companies are buying, how much they've paid, but, you know, there will always be an appetite for M&A, particularly from the biopharma companies to sort of to fill those, those revenue holes, but large scale M&A kind of outside of biopharma is less likely. It's usually on a smaller scale and it's usually more bolt on kind of acquisitions. 
Is there anything, there's been a lot of conferences lately, and you talked about themes within within earnings that you've seen thus far. What about further out, sort of themes that are across the healthcare innovation landscape that are maybe far away? <laughs> well, that's a good question. I mean, I think we've touched upon some of them, and then things such as minimally invasive surgery, which the likes of intuitive surgical have focused on, things um, such as you know, TAVO, which is a you know, a minimally invasive kind of um, heart valve solution, which Edwards and, and other companies within medical devices have developed. And then, you know, things in, um, you know, such as genomics, which we've seen from um, some of the big life science and tools companies, all of which is, is aimed at enabling patients to, you know, have this twin, you know, you have to have these twin elements of better outcomes, but also with savings to the health system. because you know, genomics and diagnostics, as we all saw during during COVID, you know, can have massive savings to the health system because if you can diagnose people quicker and sooner, then you can um, it can be optimally preventative, which is you know makes a big difference to the patient, but also the healthcare system. So the healthcare system, I, I, we just have a couple of minutes left. Can you give us a few words on this? In Canada, we live with a a, a healthcare system. It's not. Unlike the NHS, they're, they're, it is unlike the NHS, but it's an idea of healthcare for all. And governments are buckling under the cost. There's no question. It's and it's been going on since pre-COVID. It's it's only been exacerbated. I know it's similar in the UK. Where is the focus of government spending within healthcare to to automate their way through this next however long? Tell us how governments are spending and looking to spend. That's a good question. I think they're looking for for value. So when you know when companies bring products which serve as dual purpose of you know helping make patient outcomes better, like the obesity drug, but they can deliver some value, then governments are willing to pay for them. And so, for example, with the obesity drugs in the UK, the NHS, which is definitely budget constrained, is happy to pay for some you know, two years worth of treatment for some obese patients, because ultimately that should save the NHS money because you're not having to treat these obese patients for cardiovascular events or other issues where they could then be in hospital for a lot longer and have far more um, costs associated with those diseases. So that's why, you know, as the obesity companies can build out more data and they've got lots more trials, across various areas such as kidney disease as well. Um, if, if new products and drugs can demonstrate to healthcare systems that there is value from using their products, then then that is where you know healthcare systems are happy to spend money. But you know, it's an important point because in in the US they already spend 18% of GDP on healthcare. It, it, and it cannot keep going up forever. So you know solutions and innovation is needed to try and help the healthcare system cope with this. Right, right. Interesting. So this is sort of one of the big underpinnings of, of the discussion of, of obesity drugs, certainly. Anything just to, to leave investors with, can investors with how they how they want to look at healthcare going forward? Yeah, I mean in my view, healthcare continues to have this combination of defensive growth. You've got the defensiveness of of some of the large pharma companies where you have to take your oncology, or you have to take your rheumatoid arthritis drug, regardless of the economic environment. But then you've also got, you know, attractive growth prospects from many of the 
life sciencing tools companies helping develop the drugs, run the clinical trials, give the R&D research teams the equipment at these biopharma companies. And then the medical devices and the managed care companies as well have good structural long-term growth. So I think you have a combination in a pretty uncertain macro environment of, of good defensive growth. And that's you know, how the portfolio is, is positioned. Fantastic. Alex Gould, thank you very much for joining us, bringing us up to date and introducing us to some truly innovative ideas going on in the field of healthcare and how to invest it. All the very best. Thank you for your time. Thanks for joining us. I'm Pamela Ritchie. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.